all the world's a stage. One of Shakespeare's more famous sayings, and even at risk of seeming like a cliché. But in this podcast, Helen Clifford uses the work of Russian literary theorist Mikhail Bakhtin to explain how Shakespeare's stage and his language are indeed bounded to the coordinates of the world. His metaphors ask us to imaginatively look up or down to heaven or hell and to visualise where different symbolic spaces might exist in the actual theatre, something that different venues and theatre companies have exploited over centuries of performance. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded at our series of public late summer lectures in 2019. So I'm Helen, I'm coming to the end of my second year of PhD in the English Department here in Durham, where my thesis explores the 20th century Russian critic Mikhail Bakhtin, looking at how his work can be used to investigate drama and particularly Shakespeare. So the impetus for my project comes from notes Bakhtin wrote in the 1940s to revise his book Rabelais and His World. This book discusses the French Renaissance author Francois Rabelais, including themes such as carnival, festivity, and the grotesque body. In the revision notes, Bakhtin engages much more fully with Shakespeare than he does anywhere else in his work. In Bakhtin's other writing, Shakespeare is held up as a canonical figure, but he's not the main focus. The revision notes look at Shakespeare's tragedies, which opens up some totally new angles for scholars to consider. Bakhtin is a critic of Shakespeare and of drama more widely. In Shakespeare's studies so far, Bakhtin's mainly been used to discuss the comedies and histories, because these genres are more in keeping with his emphasis on festivity in the Rabelais book, which is his best-known work. I'm using the notes, then, as a jumping-off point to reconsider Bakhtin and Shakespeare, and Bakhtin and drama. His thought can be astonishingly productive for drama theorists, but hasn't been used very widely yet. So what I'm going to do today, then, will be in five parts. Um, so I'll introduce Bakhtin to you, then start off by looking at the Rabelais revision notes and zooming in on a small section where Bakhtin discusses what he calls cosmic topography, both physically represented on the stage and in Shakespeare's use of imagery as well. So essentially by this, Bakhtin means the way in which all action that takes place on stage is cosmically situated, so operating between heaven, hell and the earth, without ever losing that sense of meaningfulness within this universe. Some of this is reasonably complex, but I'll try to isolate the bits that are useful and important to us as Shakespeareans. I'll just add, too, that Bakhtin's observations are quite universal. They're based on his close reading of the tragedies and of his sense of the early modern stage. So you don't need to be a high-level Bakhtinian to understand what's going on and to use some of this thought. So once I've constructed this framework, I'll pause to discuss the early modern stage and how drama was situated on it and made cosmic by a combination of the text and staging practicalities. After a brief interlude to consider 21st century Shakespearean performance, we'll look at Bakhtin's own examples of cosmic imagery from the notes and think through these to explore how language is working in Othello, King Lear and Hamlet, linking Bakhtin and Shakespeare together. Bakhtin was born in 1895 and died in 1975, meaning that he lived through most of the major historical events that took place in Russia in the 20th century, so including the 1917 revolutions, the rise of Stalin and his purges in the 1940s, and a return to relative cultural pluralism under Khrushchev from the mid-1950s. Several of Bakhtin's colleagues perished before the 1950s, but poor health excused Bakhtin a labour camp sentence when he was arrested in 1929 and allowed him to continue teaching in various institutions outside the major cities of Russia. He didn't defend his doctoral thesis until he was almost 50 years old, and even then was refused a full PhD qualification. Um, there's also a great anecdote about him smoking most of a manuscript he'd written about the Buildings Roman or Coming of Age novel. So he ran out of cigarette papers during a period of particular hardship. But it's not clear how close to the truth this is. It might, it might just be apocryphal. 
So it's more likely that the printing press where the document was, was residing was blown up by the invading Germans um, during the Second World War. So it's a life full of incident. Um, Bakhtin remained relatively obscure for most of his own lifetime until his work was rediscovered in the 1960s, leading to the so-called Bakhtin boom in the West in the late 1980s and early 1990s. During his lifetime, the two major works he had published were Problems of Dostoevsky's Poetics and Rabelais and His World. These books address quite different topics and authors, as you might guess, and the rest of his critical canon is similarly wide-ranging. The Rabelais revision notes build on the comments Baptiste makes about Shakespeare in the early parts of Rabelais and his world. In this section of the book, he's placing Rabelais in a canon of great authors, and Shakespeare is included amongst them. The notes consider carnival, like the main text of the Rabelais book does, but it's a skewed, dark carnival that allows Baptiste to make connections with Shakespeare's tragedies. The concept of topographic gesture, which we'll encounter a bit later, echoes some of Bakhtin's ideas about the chronotope from forms of time and of the chronotope in the novel. Chronotope, which we might translate from the Greek as time-space, is to do with how different literary genres represent time and space. So in travel narratives, for example, we might encounter the road chronotope. These ideas about gesture and the body of the actor on the stage recall some of Bakhtin's early work in Towards the Philosophy of the Act, where he thinks about embodied action and what he calls eventness where concrete lived experience is meaningful rather than sort of more abstract ideas. Finally, in the notes, Bakhtin makes comparisons about theatre across time, just as in other work he often constructs literary canons with an emphasis on tracing development through centuries. The Shakespeare section of the notes ends with a nod to Dostoevsky, therefore, who's the most prominent author across Bakhtin's work, and the writer he holds up as the greatest example of dialogism. It's a really important concept for Bakhtin, so where many voices speak in the same text and none are given more weight than others. In Shakespeare studies, it's Bakhtin's work on Rabelais and the Carnivalesque that's been most widely used, mainly in work focusing on the comedies or scenes involving crowds in the histories. Some critics have read the plays or adaptations of the plays using particular pieces of Bakhtin's theory, but there's been no holistic application of Bakhtin to Shakespeare or to drama. We find disparate work on genre in The Winter's Tale, polyphony in Goddard's King Lear, and chronotope in Pacino and Long Crane's Victor III films. This may be because of the deceleration of the Bakhtin boom since the 1990s, but in some places it makes little sense. Works such as Coriolanus, for example, which is a late Roman play that has a particular emphasis on the body and political crowds, seem to be, it seems to be an extremely fertile location for Bakhtinian readings, but there's very little criticism in this area. Bakhtin's thought is somewhat unwieldy because it's so varied, and the complexity of this canon, unfortunately involving authorship disputes, just like Shakespeare, um, it means that it's difficult to place him in a particular critical movement. His rediscovery in Russia in the 1960s and later emerges in the West means that the radical nature of his thought is not necessarily appreciated. So I hope that what I'm going to do today and what my thesis will eventually do will be a reconfiguration of Bakhtin as a Shakespearean and more broadly as a critic of drama. Okay, so I'll move now into the section of the Rabelais notes that discusses cosmic topography and construct the framework that we'll use for the rest of the lecture. So, Bakhtin claims that in Shakespeare's images, similes, metaphors, etc., both poles are always given hell and heaven, angels and demons, earth and sky, life and death, top and bottom, meaning that they are topographic, they are cosmic. All the elements of the world, the entire universe, are implicated in their play. So, topography is the study of physical shape. So, here Bakhtin is making a point about the physicality of Shakespeare's language and the pictures it makes for its audience. He's interested in ambivalence elsewhere in his work, and I'll come back to this later. But here he produces a series of binaries to illustrate how Shakespeare spreads everything that takes place on his stage to the limits of the world. 
All characters and events are thus operating in the space between these extremes, between hell and heaven, earth and sky, life and death. This sense of scale makes the plays more meaningful. Bakhtin says that Shakespeare situates his work in this framework and is therefore able to ascribe universal significance to each line and gesture of his characters. This framework is, of course, heavily Christian, thanks to the context in which both Bakhtin and Shakespeare were writing. The poles of the world become tinged with morality then, as we'll see a little later when we discuss Othello along these lines. Characters move between plays as they change psychologically in accordance with the progression of the plot, producing a direct impact upon their language and the way that they express themselves. Bakhtin categorises Shakespeare's imagery as belonging to a binary itself, claiming that his similes either materialise in body, bodily topography, or cosmicize, world topography. This first category, that of bodily topography, belongs to the human physical. The poles it concerns itself with are front and back, face and rear, to do with consumption and consummation. World topography is that of the larger structure of the universe, so heaven and hell, earth and sky, angels and demons, etc. Via these categories, Bakhtin is able to classify Shakespeare's characters. Othello, for example, is a tragic high hero and speaks using the second type of images, the cosmic, as befits someone with status. Iago, Othello's lieutenant and the villain of the piece, does not possess the status that Othello does and therefore uses bodily topographic images, which Bakhtin also calls lowering images. Particular kinds of character then use particular kinds of imagery, according to Bakhtin's analysis. Again, more on this later, but reading for imagery groups and for changes in the language of characters gives us a way to track arcs through the plays. Shakespeare has his protagonists occupy certain spaces within the universe he creates. Character is constructed through language and action and brought together on the representative space of the stage. Language is, of course, married with physical embodiment on the Shakespearean stage, at least in naturalistic ways of presenting these dramas. Bakhtin comments briefly on the problem of gesture in the Shakespearean theatre. He's interested in the ways in which the body of the actor moves on the topographic stage and how it always retains topographicity. It's always situated in the universal framework which the early modern stage represents. He says that gesture points, as it were, to top and bottom, to sky and earth, so that the rim, palace, street, etc., in which the hero acts and gesticulates, is not the rim, palace or streets, of ordinary life either, for it's fitted into the frame of the topographic stage. For Bakhtin, the action and the gesture taking place in the room are at the same time taking place in a topographically understood universe. The performer's words and actions reinforce each other then, and crucially are operating within a model that's understood in a particular way by the audience. The early modern theatre thus becomes a shared space, and what the audience brings to it is important. In some of Bakhtin's other work, he discusses the ways in which selves interact with others in order to be. There's no sense of self, he says, without another to bring it into being. We might extend this thought to consider theatre without an audience. Is it possible for such a thing to exist? Models of spectatorship have changed and developed over time, but Bakhtin's emphasis on a commonly understood stage allows for a sense of community, at least in drama that he considers topographic. He goes on to draw a contrast between theatre of different eras. If Shakespeare in the early modern stage is topographic, drama contemporary to him in the first half of the 20th century, which he calls our stage, is not topographic at all. He complains that our stage is but an empty crate without topography and accents, meaning that images live a petty, diluted life within it, and that on this stage one may only bustle about, but not make essential movements. Trying to ascertain what kind of theatre Bakhtin is talking about here is quite tricky. He was exiled to Kazakhstan in 1929, and spent some time as a lecturer in world literature at the Mordovian Pedagogical Institute, where he's remembered discussing with his students a local production of Othello. 
Russian theatre in the capital, Moscow, at the time was certainly not uninteresting. In the previous 20 years, figures such as Meyerholtz were pioneering dramatic techniques, including biomechanics, which married movement with emotional expression. So is Baptiste our stage then, provincial productions of the classics which she saw in exile? His description of the clutter of naturalistic decorations, props and accessories seems to belong to what was termed the new drama of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, writers such as Ibsen and Chekhov, who placed an emphasis on realism and individual psychological drama. This kind of theatre seems to be inadequate for Baptiste. He's far more interested in the cosmic situatedness of the early modern stage than the naturalism which became popular at the end of the 19th century. So, having asserted the primacy of Shakespeare's playhouse, according to Bakhtin anyway, I thought we'd spend a few minutes looking at the early modern stage and the ways in which Bakhtin's analysis does or does not fit it. So, the evidence we have about early modern playhouses is complex and suggests that the buildings were idiosyncratic. That is, none of them are the same, so it's difficult to make general statements. So, the picture I have here is a drawing of the Swan Theatre in London, located close to the Globe on the south bank of the Thames, made by a Dutch tourist, Johannes de Witt, in 1596 less than a decade before Shakespeare wrote the plays with which this lecture is concerned. He writes a diary entry about it too. Dewitt seems to be interested in this one in terms of its similarities with the Roman amphitheatre, with annotations. He's drawing a comparison between classical staging and what he saw in London. So we can see from this how Bakhtin's sense of topographic space might map onto this kind of stage. So the roof represents heaven and was often decorated as such with gods of the sun, moon and stars represented. The stage in which the actors play is Earth, and the space below stage is Hell. Trapdoors were a feature of drama at this point, allowing characters like Faustus in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus to descend into Hell, and perhaps for old Hamlet to speak from at the beginning of Hamlet. So the stage direction in Hamlet describes the voices coming from beneath, and Hamlet addresses his father's ghost as Old Mole, emphasising the location of the actor who's speaking from below the stage. As I said before, it's unclear how much Bakhtin knew about the materiality of early modern staging, but his analysis of cosmic topography seems to be accurate. The representative nature of the architecture of the early modern playhouse does allow for this understanding of it as a space that illustrates the universe. And similarly, differences in audience experience encourage this kind of shared understanding. So as we've seen with this one here, with this picture of the modern globe, and finally with these small pictures, which might be a bit tricky to see, um, so this is the cockpit, which is an indoor playhouse that was converted in 1616. So the way the audience were managed in these auditoria is very dissimilar to what we're used to when we attend plays now. A lot of West End and regional theatres are proscenium arch buildings, which tend to keep the fourth wall intact. So from a Bactinian point of view, we can see how early modern playing spaces communicate this sense of topography. They're clearly mapped out for their audience, which indicates a reciprocal interpretive expectation both on the part of the theatre company and on the part of the audience in the manner of an exchange. The texts that are being produced at this time use this sense of a constructed world to locate action and for imagery to function within. Once again, it's difficult for us to know much about the audiences that would have been seeing these dramas. We have figures about attendance, for example, but these offer only a bare-bones portrait of what theatre going might have been like at the time. Nevertheless, the simple construction of the playhouses indicates a sense of collectivity and shared experience as we might get at any large event, early modern or modern. But the shape of the swan encourages an audience to come together. Plays took place in the afternoon as well, so outdoor theatres were lit naturally, allowing audience members to observe those around them. So if we conducted this lecture in the round, or in a horseshoe shape, it would probably really change your experiences of it. Um, it would be inflected through the other people around you, which it is to some extent already, but that would be transformed. You'd be able to see people's facial expressions, 
people looking bored, looking engaged, I hope. Um, and obviously when it comes to performance, reacting to moments on stage. So this collective comprehension is really important to early modern theatre and to Bakhtin's impression of it. Okay, so moving forward in time, 21st century Shakespeare performance is incredibly varied and we can draw on theatre practice from the last 400 years to offer new insight into the plays or ways of presenting them. <coughs> I'm going to spend a few minutes looking at three examples that use space differently and considering very briefly how Bakhtin might have thought about them. So the first of these is the Globe's original practice production of Twelfth Night, starring Mark Rylance as Olivia, which was revived in 2012. So original practice began at the Globe when Rylance became artistic director in 1997. Its aim is to recreate or replicate as many performance practices as possible of Shakespeare's company, who occupied the original Globe in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Globe's research department explored various material aspects of early modern theatre, including costume, music, and architecture, as well as the ways that actors interacted with the audience. They couldn't, of course, replicate all performance conditions. Notable omissions include the lack of an interval and director that you uh, would find at Shakespeare's time, as well as three-day rehearsals and the use of cue scripts. Um, so that's where an actor is given only their own lines and the cues, uh, rather than the text of the whole play. The result veers somewhere between Bakhtin's analysis of early modern theatre and theatre contemporary to him. By reproducing, as near as possible, the original globe building, the actors would have been unavoidably encased in the cosmic framework we discussed, making meaning by a gesture. Although props and pieces of the set would have been kept to a minimum, there's an obsession with detail that Bakhtin seems to deride in his dismissive comments on our stage. Trying to make historically accurate original practices theatre seems to involve a similar kind of psychological intensity in the way that it's constructed to that which Bakhtin described in the note. While the final effect might look simplistic, in terms of acting style, an incredible amount of work has gone into pieces that make up the overall look of the production. In 2011, immersive theatre com company Punch Drunk opened their site-specific show Sleep No More, which continues to run at the McKittrick Hotel in New York eight years later. Sleep No More allows its audience to move through the performance space, encountering elements of Shakespeare's play in different places throughout the building, which is a really big um, converted warehouse in New York. Audience members wear masks, and do not interact with the performers, who carry out a one-hour loop performance that spectators can choose to follow, so you can follow various plot lines through the building, moving around the different floors of the hotel. Sleep No More is theatre in a totally different mode. It functions almost as an art installation, and largely removes the text of the play, with most of the action expressed through movement and dance. Like the Globe Twelfth Night, there's an emphasis placed upon the material detail of the work, with audience members encouraged to explore their surroundings, including opening drawers and doors to investigate the world that Punch Trunk had created. There's no cosmicizing framework to this piece at all. Spectators can choose to go exactly where they wish during the performance, so it's possible for audience experience to be totally unique and individualized. Sleep No More, Sleep no More is very far removed from the early modern theatre and from Bakhtin's theorizing of it. As I observed when looking at the globe as a performance space, there's a sense of togetherness, however, inside the fictional McKittrick Hotel. And as you can see from this picture, a kind of collective identity that's created by the mandatory wearing of ma uh, masks by audience members. It's impossible, though, to read a cosmic framework into the piece. Instead, Punch Drunk are more interested in that individual audience experience and adaptation. Okay. And the third and final production I'm going to look at now sits at a halfway point between Twelfth Night and Sleep No More. This is Roman Tragedies by Dutch company Tonal Group Amsterdam. It premiered in the Netherlands in 2007 and toured to the UK in 2009 and 2017. It brings together Coriolanus, Julius Caesar and Antony Cleopatra in a five and a half hour show. 
The production originated in a proscenium theatre, and I saw it at the Barbican, which has a similar, similar proscenium arch setup. But after half an hour, there's an announcement um, over a tannoy that audience members are now welcome to leave their seats in the auditorium and move onto the stage, where there are seats and sofas in amongst the modern conference-style set pieces. The piece works as a large and Shakespearean game of musical chairs. Scenes are played out with regular intervals, at which the audience is free to move around and change where they're watching the production from. So you could spend almost all of Roman tragedies on stage amongst the actors, or stay in your assigned seat back out in the auditorium. For the last 90 minutes of the show, however, so the conclusion of Antony and Cleopatra, the audience is directed back to their positions in the, in the conventional audience space. There are elements of choice in the audience experience of this show, not to the same extent as that of Sleep No More, but more than in Twelfth Night. Again, the production is an adaptation, but it leans more heavily on a Dutch translation of Shakespeare's text. Given the modern setting of the piece, there's again a lack of this cosmic framework, but there are elements of world building, including an LED ticker, which runs across the top of the stage, giving you descriptions of the historical events that take place during the story of the plays. The production's rooted in realistic details and certainly fits Bacting's description of a cluttered space. So, having looked at Bacting's criticism and ways of staging Shakespeare in the 21st century, I'll now move to a closer analysis of the text and cosmic imagery present in Shakespeare's work. So we'll use the work that we've done considering Bacting's analysis of cosmic topography in three of the major tragedies, Othello, King Lear, and Hamlet. Othello has the more straightforward trajectory of disintegration evidenced by language, but Lear and Hamlet also display this movement between topographic levels and moments of crisis for each of their protagonists. Um, so we'll start with Othello before moving on to discuss the other two plays and their consideration of madness and language as a theme that runs between all of them. As I said earlier, it's in Othello that we see characters move between types of imagery most clearly. Bactine writes that, When Othello is seized by the madness of jealousy, his speech and his gestures is flooded with images of the bodily nether regions and at times approximates Iago's speech. He notes that the image of Desdemona in his imagination moves from the high cosmic plane of heavenly purity, paradise, and angel to the plane of the whore. Othello himself observes the shift that Desdemona has undergone for him. Talking to Iago, he says that her name that was as fresh as Diane's visage is now begrimed and black as mine own face. Diane here is Diana, the Roman goddess of hunt who's also associated with virginity. Othello associates Desdemona's former status with heaven and with chastity before noting the extremity of her fall. This simile is cosmic in the Bactonian sense. It pulls from pole to pole, as he describes earlier in the notes, with Desdemona here not situated between the two, but rather associated with the lower pole. Othello uses this imagery to communicate the vast change in his perception of her. Bactine gives various further examples of Othello's cosmic imagery, focusing particularly on what he calls the logic of oaths, curses, profanities, incantations, blessings. In these examples, we see again the cosmic poles Bactine is interested in. Look here, Iago, all my fond love, thus do I blow to heaven. Tis gone, arise black vengeance from the hollow hell. Othello couples love with heaven and vengeance with hell, moving from the love he felt for Desdemona at the beginning of the play to the vengeance he decides he needs to deal out by the end of the piece. At the climax of the play, Othello even curses himself using this cosmic structure. He places his own deeds at the hell pole and describes Desdemona as heavenly, exclaiming, whip me, ye devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight. The images here reverse the change that Desdemona has undergone in Othello's eyes during the play. In death, she becomes celestial once again, as she was before, once the machinations are made clear. 
Othello returns to the dignified, well-spoken general he was when he first defended his marriage to Desdemona with the speech he gives before his suicide, eloquent and tragic. Um, Bacton doesn't remark on the formal changes which Othello's speech undergoes, however, and this, I think, is worth looking at, too, before we move on to Lear and Hamlet. In Act 4, Scene 1, Othello falls in a trance, according to Shakespeare's stage direction. This moment's often interpreted dif differently in production, although some sort of epilepsy is a common choice for directors and actors. The language leading up to Othello's episode displays verbal disintegration that matches his physical breakdown at this point. Earlier in the play, we've seen him speak well-constructed and fluent verse. The tale he tells of his wooing of Desdemona, including the battles, sieges, fortunes that I have passed, is exciting and expressive. In this scene, then, Othello and Iago engage in a paranoid exchange about Desdemona, mirroring and repeating pieces of speech until Othello breaks down. To kiss in private, an unauthorised kiss. And then, to be naked with her friend in bed, an hour or more, not meaning any harm. Naked in bed, Iago, and not mean harm. Just before Othello falls in the trance, he moves into confused prose, delivering fragmented phrases that use wordplay to indicate the confusion and anger Othello's feeling here. Lie with her, lie on her. We say lie on her when they say belie her. His last line before the fit, it's possible, confess, handkerchief, oh devil, has him totally incomprehensible, grasping at snatches of meaning in this false narrative that Iago has created. So as well as imagery, we can look at formal aspects of the language Shakespeare's using to indicate changes in the psychology of his characters, as well as thinking about what these differences might do for the actors who are delivering the text. It's really easy to deliver a well-constructed piece of blank verse, but when you've got things like this, which are irregular, there's no rhythm to them, it's much more difficult for the actor to speak. So we're now moving on to think about King Lear, examining the way in which Bacteen discusses the period of madness that the self-deposed monarch goes through. He makes a simple comparison, suggesting that just as Othello moves from the high cosmic plane of imagery to that of the bodily nether regions, we also observe this in the case of Lear, in his madness stage, where he makes his transition to the role of the fool king. There's plenty to unpick here in Bacting's discussion of the fool king. This comment recalls his work in the main text of the Rabelais book, which focuses on carnival, and particularly moments in carnival rituals where monarchy is inverted and a fool becomes a king. Shakespeare complicates this situation in King Lear. So Lear was king, has been decrowned, regresses into a state of madness, but then crowns himself once again. In a moment of pathos, Lear uses flowers and weeds to make this crown, which in production often delivers Christian allusions to Christ's crown of thorns. Batsy's analysis here has Lear moving between several different levels, from the high cosmic plane of king to that of the fool, and then transforming into the fool king. He doesn't comment directly on the Christian imagery that Lear's crown of weeds brings into play, but here, the humility and pain of Christ is combined with his divinity. And these figurative comparisons have Lear moving between high and low levels of imagery. Lear spends more time in his state of madness than Othello does in his state of jealousy. Othello's jealousy escalates towards the end of the play and is important in the climax of the plot. Lear's madness, by contrast, is a stage through which he moves in the middle of the play. We see him as he was in the first two acts, interacting with his daughters, their suitors and servants before he's cast out onto the heath, where we find him at the beginning of Act 3. He regains lucidity before the final act, and this movement out of the episode of Madness is perhaps the most interesting and poignant part of the play. Bacteen suggests that the trials that Lear undergoes allow him to understand the genuine reality of the world, of life, and of the human being. It's not until we see Lear in his lucid state in the concluding moments of the play that this knowledge becomes apparent. Arguably, the genuine reality of the world is revealed to Lear earlier on, 
in Cordelia's refusal to swear her uncompromised love and allegiance to him and the subsequent betrayal of Regan and Goneril. But it seems that it takes the whole play for Lear to come to terms with this revelatory information. His movement through topographic levels, then, communicates his confusion, anger, and finally acceptance of the truth of the world, which tragically he has little time to enjoy before the traumatic final events of the play. So Lear's interactions with Edgar, so Edgar is the son of Gloucester. Gloucester thinks he's plotting against him, so in order to escape persecution at the court, he goes out onto the heap and disguises himself as a beggar, which is where he encounters Lear. So, and he calls himself Poor Tom while he's doing this. So Lear's interactions with Edgar in the guise of Poor Tom show both characters in a state of extremity. In the first scene on the heath, Lear describes Edgar's state of dress using Baptinian low-level imagery, describing him as a poor, bare, forked animal. Um, so earlier on in this passage, he invokes the cosmic poles of the landscape, telling Edgar, Thou were better in thy grave than to answer with thy uncovered body this extremity of the skies. Lear himself attempts to return to a similar kind of elemental state, trying to divest himself of his garments with the line, off, off, you lendings. It's Edgar, actually, who seems to take on Bactine's bodily material imagery, so he speaks of cow dung, the ditch dog, mice and rats. Yet Lear gives Edgar intellectual status, refusing Gloucester's encouragement to seek shelter from the storm, and preferring instead to talk with Edgar, whom he describes as this philosopher, as well as a learned Theban. When he's recovered from his madness, Lear has only a little time to interact with his former courtiers and with Cordelia. In the final scene of the play, Lear's language is astonishingly monosyllabic. His reaction to the death of Cordelia is composed of exclamation and repetition. How, 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 how. And probably one of the most famous lines in the play, never, 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 never. So while Lear seems to slip into, or at least align himself with Bacting's lower level imagery during his period of madness, the lucidity and simplicity of his final scene suggests that another kind of transformation is taking place, in a manner that's less straightforward than that of Othello. Lear seems to move into and out of madness, but the state he regains at the end of the play is not like his former self before he let go of the crown. Hamlet's madness is again different to that of Othello and Lear. Bacting describes what Hamlet undergoes as a state of fictive madness, but complicates the way that the imagery of the play is working. Not only does Hamlet's language change during the putting on of his antic disposition, but Bactine claims that the world is revealed to him in the aspect of the bodily nether regions, the images of which are combined in his lines with the retained images of high topography, restoring ambivalence. So ambivalence, as I said before, is important in a lot of Bactine's work. So the way we've talked about him today hasn't really acknowledged that, largely because so much of topographic imagery and gesture deals with extremes of poles, boundaries, and structure. Yet in the Rabelais book, the spinning carnival image is, is key. So this image does not settle. It's constantly moving, flipping, doesn't come down on one side or another. We could read ambivalence into Bacting's insistence on the constant presence of both poles in Shakespeare's images, including heaven and hell, angels and devils, life and death, etc. Othello and Lear, however, seem to make choices or definitive movements between poles. But crucially, Bacting suggests that Hamlet does not. Hamlet seems instead to be able to hold both levels in his mind at the same time, as evidenced by his exchange with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern when they're sent to observe him by Claudius. He engages in a rude conversation about the private parts of fortune, before coming out with one of the most profound statements of the play. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space, were it not that I have bad dreams. We see this ambivalence at work here. Hamlet suggests that he's capable of being physically confined, but psychologically free at the same time. Rather than adhering to one extreme or the other, he's able to balance the self between the two. 
or he would be able to if he didn't have bad dreams. Both Lear and Hamlet, Bakhtin suggests, come to recognise the genuine reality of the world by the end of their plays. For Lear, this recognition comes early in the play, once his daughters reveal their true selves to him, seizing the power he gives them greedily and casting them out. He becomes aware that the power he thought he possessed before was merely a facade. In Hamlet, the moment of recognition is less clear, where the protagonist's coming to terms with the world is more pronounced. Just before the fatal duel with Laertes, Hamlet comments, If it be not now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. He tells Horatio, his friend, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow, again bringing together monumental meaning for something small and insignificant. It's this ambivalent image which leads Hamlet into the climax of the play and the death he achieves having finally taken revenge on his father's murderer. Bakhtin suggests that it's this ambivalence that is key to the play and particularly the conclusions to which it comes. He comments that top and bottom, front and rear, outside and inside have shifted and blended, but this is revealed on the single-toned tragic plane. In Hamlet, then, Shakespeare brings cosmic poles together to reveal the truth of the world in tragedy. Bakhtin asserts, rather grimly, unfortunately, such is life, it is criminal by its very nature. This statement lies at the heart of the Rabelais revision notes, and isn't something I've been able to deal with today, but essentially, Bakhtin's diagnosis of tragedy, and indeed life, is that in order to express individualism, characters and people must necessarily commit crimes against others, in particular against their nuclear family. In Macbeth, for example, the murdered King Duncan stands in for Macbeth's father, while in Lear, Edmund, Edgar's brother, plots against his father, Gloucester. Bakhtin's work in the Rabelais book is concerned with festive simplicity and social collectivity, so the darker pattern he proposes in the notes works to break this cycle. Hamlet, breaks, for example, breaks down family units throughout with the death of old Hamlet before the play begins, Hamlet's murder of Polonius, which leads to um, Ophelia's madness and her subsequent death, and then eventually Hamlet's murder of Claudius. Bakhtin does manage to retain, however, some positive sense of the play. He notes that here too, once in a while, the liberating tones of the Saturnalia and Carnival are heard. Hamlet himself brings a grim comedy to his feigned madness, which gives way to an internal piece in the final scenes of the play. So we'll end then on this image of the providential sparrow. So I hope I've been able to give you some new ways of thinking about these three tragedies and new approaches to Shakespeare, imagery and performance. Um, so I don't know how familiar you were with Bakhtin before today, but I think his, his work is really productive for Shakespeare and for drama scholars in general. Um, the Rabelais revision notes particularly encourage close reading, uh, which is a really important skill in criticism and one that I hope I've demonstrated today. I don't think you need to use Bakhtin necessarily to make these sorts of observations and perform this kind of analysis. But particularly in Shakespeare, uh, reading for language changes is a really basic approach, but particularly in Shakespeare it often provides you with a wealth of material. Um, looking at images used and the form and structure that they're used in is key. So, and I also think it's really important to remember that these are performance texts, and so the changes that Shakespeare is making are for the actors delivering the lines. The text is always going to feel different when it's spoken and combined with movement and gesture as well. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.